You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. Are you looking for a podcast your whole family can enjoy together? Uh-huh. Check out Culture Kids Podcast. Our adventures will ignite your curiosity for culture, traditions, languages, geography, and even pop culture with interviews from guests all over the world. Through each episode, we aim to help children become empathetic, creative leaders in their communities and help them see the beauty in our differences. And that's Culture Kids Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. I, probably like many of our listeners, grew up with hummingbirds. My my grandmother had uh, many. What can they teach us? Okay, this okay. is going to blow your, blow your mind. Okay. These birds consume 3 to 7 calories per day. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Happy New Year 2019. Hello, Angie. Hello, Chris. We made it. We've come a long way. I know. I know. We're still going. People are still listening. It's incredible. I know. I know. And it's, this is our, our, Second episode of 2019 where we just covered sea turtles, but this is one uh, helping propel us into the new year. Yeah, it's very exciting. I'm excited. I'm excited for conservation. I'm excited for endangered species looking forward into 2019. Angie, I just feel like we've covered a lot in the past year. I just have this feeling that the world is taking notice finally. I just have this feeling that we are. I do. I think there's definitely an uprising and upsurgence of attentiveness, paying attention to things, mm-hmm. what pe- what you're buying, what you're consuming and where it's going, uh, the animals involved in your community, and then, of course, endangered animals outside your community and how we can all help. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's going to be a good year, Chris, for conservation. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think so. I don't know why. Just Autumn Lindy just came into my head with the red wolves, you know, what's going on with them in North Carolina. Uh, just reading a story recently. And I know we got to, we got to get back to doing some news, but they were looking at maybe moving some to Arkansas to a reserve, which is really good. It's just stories like that. Like you and I are just keeping our, you know, checking the pulse in conservation and, you know, keeping the news and you and I on Facebook, we're constantly sharing stories together. So just looking ahead into the year, I think there's a lot of good stuff happening, but we need to keep fighting. You know, we need to keep learning. We need to keep fighting. Sure. We need to keep voting with our dollar and then also helping to drive political change because that's where we're going to see the real movement. If communities start banning plastic bags, if communities start demanding more land for their wildlife, for their, for their children, Mm -hmm. uh, things like that, it'll, that's where the change happens is. A lot of times and a lot of community, it has, you have to have the, the policies in place to help promote that change. And I think people are going to hopefully start doing that, obviously here in the United States. And then also other countries are taking the forefront too and, uh, setting the bar high. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I applaud mm-hmm. those countries and those people in those countries that are also fighting hard every day for, uh, threatened and endangered species. And then also for a threatened environment, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And today, I mean, a, another wonderful species, hummingbirds. And we're, this one, I think, you know, we talked about it. We're just going to do a general on 
this bird because there's 328 known species. So there's huge. We didn't pick one specific one, but just wanted to call, you know, talk about the general species or family of hummingbirds. Right. And just the hummingbirds. Yeah. I think what is so fun, what's going to be fun today about these birds, how unique they are. They're incredible adaptations. And I just think they hold a special place in many hearts, you know, that, that have been able to see them and, and just know about them. Oh, yes, Chris. I probably like many of our listeners grew up with hummingbirds. My my grandmother had uh, many hummingbird feeders. And then my mom kind of took that on. And to this day, my boys love going to their Nana's house in the summers of Michigan to see hummingbirds. She's got them on both sides of her house and she makes the, the best uh, sugar water sauce ever and mm-hmm, and we just watch mm-hmm. them and watch their behavior and their interactions and in Michigan southwest Michigan we're lucky enough to get the ruby-throated hummingbirds they come up that far and it's just they're so fun to watch and they're just beautiful I you know and it's like it makes me want to be a birder these these ones make me want to go out oh and- but yeah finally Chris is on the bird nerd train I love it. it it is fun it is fun they they just you know I, it's like I want to go out and and see these and if, gosh I wish I had a good camera besides my cell phone and take pictures of them because they're just gorgeous they're these birds are gorgeous they they are small colorful birds with iridescent feathers that are just Wow. Wow. When you look at the pictures of these birds, you were going to be wowed. They're gorgeous. Yeah. I spent a lot of time just flipping through the different images of all, maybe I I probably didn't look at images of all 328 species. No. However, that's on my bucket list this year (laughs) to to, to read their names and just appreciate their beauty and their, uh, and basically the way their bills are designed and their colors and their size. It's just, they're incredible. Oh, they're beautiful. And so the word, you know, they're called hummingbirds because one of the things, if you don't know, is they flap their wings so fast. And I mean, it sounds like they're humming, you know, on average about 80 times per second, per second, one, (laughs) one. I'm like trying to picture me doing (laughs) uh, 80 80 jumping jacks and like, I mean, they only take me like minutes, like a lot. Yes. Oh, and it's just... (laughs) Their adaptations. Second, though, I, can't even, I don't even think I can do one jumping jack per second. I mean, no, no, tough. eighty times, eighty times per second, and that's just on average. It's up to two hundred in some some of the species. It's just oh, they're they're great, they're great, they're great. So they can fly right, left, up, down, backwards, upside down, like helicopters. Yeah, then they hover. Helicop- so helicopters can't fly upside down, but they can hover. No. No, I, there is one. Actually, there's a video of one that actually does a loop, loop to loop, upside wow. down. Yeah, yeah, it's oh, a crazy helicopter. Boys. Yeah, <laughs> cool. it's it's a it's obviously it's a military helicopter, but I wouldn't want to be doing that. They hover, and the way they do it is their wings go in a figure eight pattern. That is how they hover. It's just wow. They're just wow. You know, on average, three to five inches in length they're up to 13 centimeters so there are some of the smallest birds on earth i mean and you want to stick with us because at the end i'm going to tell you the smallest hummingbird on earth and the largest hummingbird bird on earth and it's going to blow you away how how small they get like it's just oh my god they're they're adorable other things about them they have this really long beak that's that's tapered i mean really specialized to obtain the nectar that they need from long, you know, narrow flowers. Uh, another th- interesting thing, their, their feet are only for perching. You know, they don't hop or, along the ground or walk like some birds do, right. you know, that we've mm-hmm. seen. Right. Just beautiful. And then they come in all sorts of different colors, right? Greens, blues, reds. Oh, just iridescent. Brilliant. Yeah. Oranges, greens, blues, purples, yellows. I mean, they're just... And then boring like white said, and brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know those poor ones. Uh, yeah. But yeah, we'll put some pictures up on our show notes to show you some of the uh, some of the more brilliant species or the species that we are uh, highlighting this week. Right. Right. They're just, they're beautiful. Now, for our listeners around the world, unfortunately, hummingbirds are only narrowed to the Americas and the Caribbean. 
So yes. they're not we do, in we Asia. We do have a couple listeners in uh, South and Central America. I oh, yeah, a few. Yeah, a few. Yeah. So yeah. that's where they're found in the Americas, but primarily Central and South America. Right, right. That's where, the, where most of them, and even high up range, what I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to this, but they're even hummingbirds in the Andy Mountains up to 17,000 feet or 5,000 meters. Like, wow, they're up high. Yeah, oh. yeah, they're... Yeah, they're they're great. They're great. But I think you bring up a very important point is that they can be found in a variety of habitat. I mean, from mm-hmm. basically arid scrub, desert oasis, coastal lands, coastal lowlands, tropical rainforest, pine forest, desert oasis, alpine tundra, and of course, high elevations. So, it's the range is just really impeccable compared to some of the other species in the way that they are able to, as Chris previously mentioned, specialize in certain types of nectar to live, probably because there's so many different species and so they don't outcompete each other, right? Oh, they're, wait till I get to evolution. It's just, it, these birds are, are great. I mean, they're just, they're, they're amazing. They're amazing to study. You know, it's all like, you know, I know we love hoofstock and the large mammals and, if I had to wow, pick a species of bird, gonna day, gonna have, this is going to be the day, folks, that Chris turned into a bird nerd. I love it. I'm a huge fan of Central and South America. Let's go birding. Yeah. Uh, I, oh. I, North America, we only get a, yeah, Chris, because we could go birding for hummingbirds here in North America, but there's really only about a couple dozen species or less than that even that venture as far in North America. And I've already spent a lot of time with the ruby-throated one growing up in Michigan. So, uh, yeah, we need to, I think, Central and South America is where it's at, my friend. Costa Rica. Let's go to Costa Rica. I'm heading down there. Costa Rica <laughs> is one of my happy spots for sure. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I need to get down there. Now, the hummingbird, it's, you know, and these these over 300 species, they are critical to biodiversity. And I, I want to explain a little bit why. The major thing they do, obviously with their feeding, and when we get to nutrition, we'll talk about how much they eat and, and what they eat, but they pollinate plants. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're a native pollinator, right? It's not just the insects. These birds are playing a critical role in preserving our, our natural habitat. Right. Yes, Chris, they're so important. And a, a lot of hummingbird species are the sole pollinator for several species of plants. In Brazil alone, hummingbirds pollinate 58 different plant species. 58. Yeah. Yeah. So no more hummingbirds, no more of those plants. Maybe, and who knows, do we even know, have we even tested all the benefits that those plants have? Maybe the cure of cancers in that plant species somewhere. So now that's obviously a long stretch, but that's the kind of Mm -hmm. ecosystem role, big picture thinking as far as getting rid of one species and the trickle down effect to how that can hinder several other species. Yeah. And it's, you know, so this is what I I kind of want to, you know, one of the soapboxes I was going to get on today, one of the rabbit holes I went down. (laughs) Put put your seatbelt on folks or uh, fast forward this a little bit. No, just kidding. No, no, do not fast forward. Do not fast forward. (laughs) And it's, it's the constant thing we talk about and, and and it's climate change, what's going on around the planet. And, you know, in, in, in our thinking, right? So you and I have covered 60 something species so far and, and we've taken a global glimpse of different habitats, different environments. And we've seen how certain things are affecting certain species. You know, go to Vaquita porpoise and it's just the gill nets down there in the Gulf, Gulf of California destroying those animals and the, the, the key ecological role that, that they have. The, the Saula, the Sumatran rhino, you know, I'm thinking of Dr. Long and the blue whales off New Zealand, just all these species that we've covered, right? In the natural world in the last 300 million years, there is a, a normal evolution, you know, changing process, right? That is normal. It's normal for things to go extinct. It's normal for humming, say hummingbirds, a, a species like a hummingbird going extinct slowly over thousands of years or millions yes. of years, right? Now with that being said, you know, the 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 natural thing, 
rapid climate change. That is the worry. That is the scientific view that Angie and I have taken this past year plus that is harming species. It's when you have these hummingbirds with those 50 plus plants, if they go away really quickly, other species do not have time to adapt. And that is where you start seeing the dominoes start falling. So I looked at a, a couple papers one was, this one was really great, uh, Garcia and others, it's multiple dimensions of climate change and their Im- implications for biodiversity, mm-hmm. came out in science in 2014, and I'm just going to quote them, species with specialized climatic requirements are interacting with climatic events with narrow temporal distributions. So they're looking at what I'm just talking about, rapid climate change, and this shifts in distribution of climates, right? So we know the poles are getting warmer, right? So fish are migrating there. Different species are migrating there. Whereas the narwhal we just covered, the polar bear, the walrus, another one, they are moving further south or I just think of the walrus coming to the beaches, right? right? Because there's no sea ice and you're changing the distribution of where these animals are. Now, looking at this further, you know, trying to wrap this up and so it's not a 10 hour podcast. <laughs> there's another paper that I, that I kind of looked at. So there, that first one was looking at distribution of climate, how that affects species. Now let's look specifically at birds. This paper by Winker and Gibson, this was just published in 2018 and they're looking at broad scale effects of recent and future climate change among migratory birds. Okay. Okay. And they argue that birds, so canary in the coal mine, everybody kind of understands that, right? They used to take canaries down in the coal mine with them. If the bird dropped dead, uh uh-oh, get the heck out because there's no oxygen, there's gases, things like that. So in this paper, they argue that birds are long indicators of environmental health, Mm -hmm. right? They look at it because birds, due to their mobility, are the first ones to show change with climate with changes in climate and distribution. So the thing is, so birds are able to adapt quicker and move farther than say the naked mole rat, right? These tiny little rodents that are stuck in that one region of Africa. Right. Very specialized. Yeah. They can't migrate. They can't pick up and go, you know, a hundred, 200 miles, you know, they can go a hundred feet, you know, or 20 Mm. meters. (laughs) They can't go very far. So with birds, they're looking at birds, they're looking at their change in distribution. That is really giving scientists an indicator of environmental health. Now, I'm, you know, I wanted to say this too, because Angie and I, you know, we always try to take the scientific view. We're very skeptical and, and we don't try and we're not trying to be alarmist, but once these dominoes start to fall, you know, a lot of species are, are going to go extinct too. That's the problem. And we're losing the vast biodiversity, not just a couple, not just 10 or 20. You're talking thousands, millions, especially when you start looking at insects and plants and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, some species are going to survive. Some will. Uh, Roaches will survive, I'm sure. Pigeons. (laughs) Yeah, pigeons will survive. There's certain species species that will adapt and survive. The question is, will we? So it's a big thing. And I think with hummingbirds, it's another one that they can look at because these things do migrate and we're going to get there in a second. Mm-hmm. But if they start dying off, then we're in big trouble. We're in big, big trouble. We're in big trouble. Well, Chris, I think that was a very good soapbox and I appreciate it and probably do most of our listeners. And for those of you that maybe didn't appreciate it, maybe it'll help get you thinking about some stuff. And although it's, Potentially somewhat doom and gloom. I think if we don't understand the dire consequences of climatic change, then we're not going to be moved to do things about it. And we're not going to be moved to force our politicians to do some things about it. And especially here in the United States, we have a big, um, uh, large group of people that, uh, aren't, uh, are kind of turning a blind eye on climatic issues and, uh, gutting our EPA and things like that, where I, I know in some of the European countries and um, and Central and South American countries are actually making leaps and bounds to uh, do things for the environment. And they're almost becoming more of the trendsetters uh, compared to us here in the U.S. 
But for all of our listeners there in the here in the U.S., make waves. Vote with your dollar. Yeah. Email yeah. your okay. Yeah, we're not going to be able to change perhaps the um, federal government at this point in time until we vote in 2020. However, we can talk to our our local mayors and our, even our state senators and house representatives and governors more on a little bit more local scale. Uh, that's how yeah. change is going to have to be made. So that's why it's not all doom and gloom because we're making ourselves aware and we're using science uh, to help predict things and understand things. And I think as Chris pointed out, the hummingbird is a, our birds in general are very, very, very important indicators of uh, the environment and overall yeah. uh, climate change. And and it's like you and I, you know, as a sci- as scientists, we we build credibility, right? And we don't we take in the information, we analyze it, we weigh the evidence, and then we give our opinions or we restate it, right? I go back to to Corbin Maxey and the trophy hunting debate that you and I had with him. Great episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back. It, it, we talk about trophy hunting and the so-called benefits to conservation. There are none, bottom line. But anyways, I mean, that's what the, Spoiler that's what, alert. yeah. And that's the evidence that Angie and I looked at, you know, besides we, we didn't take our personal views into consideration. You know, we, we, we both abhor it, but we said, Hey, you know, if the money benefits conservation, then we would possibly support it because Absolutely. in the grand scheme of things, it's important. It's not. Trophy hunting is not. Um, zoos and aquariums. I have a good friend now that I talk to her all the time, you know, and I'm trying to convince her not to use plastic straws anymore and talking about, you know, some of these issues with, you know, why zoos are important, um, things like that. We use, you know, we, we look at the evidence, we weigh it, and then we state it. That's what we do on this podcast. And my last reason to care or why I care about a hummingbird is because clearly Chris cares. So that is very exciting. <laughs> I care about every species. No, I know, I know, but you're turning into a bird nerd over hummingbirds. Oh, That's I know. Awesome. I know, yes, I know. Just they're incredible. Say, me and Jesse Golden, me and Jesse Golden, you know, we're, he's, he, he was working on me down there in New Zealand and cause that's all there is hey, is Jesse, birds down you. there, you know? Yeah. Oh, exactly. Uh, yeah, he wanted to take me out and get me seasick, you know, to look for the uh, albatross. So hummingbirds, huge, huge family. There's over 102 genera, 328 known species, just nine dis- distinct family groups. And it's just, well, you Chris, listen that, to these. That's, what, that's one of the facts that blew my mind is yeah. I hadn't realized how many genres and or species there were. I mean, honestly, even though I love birds and I'm a wannabe bird nerd. Yeah. If you would ask me, I would have said, Oh, like a hundred. That's yeah. But that's not even close. No, no, it's, it's crazy. And listen to these names, these family names, the topazes, the hermits, the mangoes, the brilliants, the coquettes, the mountain gems, the bees, the emeralds. And then there's a single species group, the Patagonia. These are the giant hummingbirds. Just, I mean, oh, yeah. How do you not love them? How do you not love them? I mean. Even the people that name hummingbirds are awesome, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. They're just, they're, they're beautiful. They're specialized. They're incredibly unique. Now, their evolution is a little bit interesting. They're related to the swifts. So that's really where they, they came out. Now, I'm going to, this is what a, a big nerd I am, Angie. And I want to make you take this course, but I know you're too busy. But, uh, you know, Coursera and I have the the horse course, right? My horse course where mm-hmm. I've had like 40, 50,000 students on it. So I enrolled in one and it's dinosaurs and how they turned into birds. <laughs> so. Oh, I would love that. And my son Xander would, oh man, and he still yeah. wants to be a paleontologist. So that's right up his alley. I'll send you the and- link. I'm going to, I'm going to take it. So I, I figure out, you know, exactly how this happened, how they went from dinosaurs to birds. I think that sounds awesome. And you can send me the course if I don't have time. That's why I he won't. For my cliff notes. <laughs> I call them my Chris notes, my cliff notes. <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah, I would maybe, I would probably have more interest in like just like the bird biology end of things. Mm-hmm. I I took a bird biology class, but I don't even want to tell you how many years ago it was and uh have long, would need a definitely a refresher course in it. 
Yeah, maybe I'll I'll put the link up on the show notes. Coursera is awesome. Free college courses. I did one. That'd be cool. You could maybe get a group yeah. of uh of you and some of the listeners that have yeah. interest in that kind of kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cool ones. There's the animal behavior one that I took a couple years ago. It's, oh, Coursera it's really cool. is incredible. I've taken a couple courses. Yeah, I think I think yeah. you had us do the animal behavior one. Yeah. Um, I think I took a statistics one before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cracked that whip on my grad students, but she's no longer a grad student. <laughs> she's my colleague. So, okay, so bird evolution, you know, and I, I will come back and, and give you more nerdy details there. Hummingbirds. Yay, stay tuned. Over 40 million years ago in Eurasia, they they – a single, you know, a bunch of species came out from swifts. Then a single common ancestor 22 million years ago, we can trace back to the 300 species plus species of hummingbird we have today. What is so crazy about hummingbirds, and this is why, again, I got so excited about that reading up on this. Scientists that study this are in, just blown away at how quickly hummingbirds evolve. That to, even today, there's Still evolving and some predict, you know, bar anything catastrophic over the next million years, hummingbird species is probably going to double. So we'll have over 600 different species of hummingbird. Wow. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really great. It's really great. Now, obviously the early ancestors couldn't fly long distances over the oceans. So they migrated into the Americas over the land bridge between Alaska and, and now today Russia, you know, over the Bering Strait. They came into North America. Then when they hit South America, they just exploded. The environment was perfect for them. And actually today, and this is what, again, what blows me away about these birds, 40% of all the species reside in the Andes mountain region. And Mm -hmm. scientists, again, are astonished about how these birds can survive like up to 17,000 feet or 5,000 meters. Because this one scientist, uh, Dr. McGuire, said, this is the worst place in the world for a hummingbird to be. <laughs> they, we're going to get into their metabolic rates, right? It, 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 they, they have these super high metabolic rates. Oxygen availability is low. Is impo- it's low, yeah. Yeah. And even the air is thinner. So like helicopters, you know, you, you hear about these high mountain rescues. It's very dangerous for them to go up high because there's less air, less resistance. They can't hover. But here's these hummingbirds surviving just fine way up high. Just mm-hmm. incredible. Incredible. Now, the other really cool thing about their evolution that I, that I really want to uh, drive home with these birds is this idea of co-evolution with plants. So scientists that study these guys, bless them, that hummingbirds actually drive the evolution of their own ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Because they're, they're these pollinators and they go around and so they'll proliferate the plants they need. And so during their, while they're evolving, the plants are evolving right with them to optimize the environment for this one bird. So just mm-hmm. you wrap your mind around it. You're just like, wow. You know, I mean, that's what we're doing as humans. You know, we're driving our own ecosystem, you know, on earth. Right. <laughs> but these birds are doing it too. So. Some would, some would argue we should drive it more carefully. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but we've definitely had an impact. I mean, we definitely have. Now that's just kind of the, the evolution, uh, in a nutshell with them, but they, they, they are incredible adaptive animals. Now on average, this is pretty interesting too, being as small as they are, they live up to 12 years, six to 12 years, which is pretty long. Right, Chris, and they've been known to survive up to 17 years uh, living under human care. Yeah, so, I mean, long time for a little bird. Long, long time for a little bird. Yeah, and, and because there's so many of them, it's a little difficult to address their annual survival rates. But for the North American species, that handful of you know, less than 24 or whatever, uh, it's thought to be between like 30 and 45%. The green violet ear hummingbird, which I would love to see, can fly up to 93 miles per hour or 150 kilometers per hour over short distances. That's crazy. <laughs> it's just like zip. I mean, that is so fast. Oh, they're just uh, Oh, and we're going to get to nutrition, but they eat half their weight in sugar every day. The the ruby-throated, one of the ones you were talking about, has the smallest number of feathers ever counted on any bird. Um some other factoids on average, hummingbirds need need a meal every fifteen minutes. 
<laughs> Angie, Angie could, could do that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> could you imagine eating every yeah. 15 minutes? Oh, my God. Yes. Uh, that was me this yeah. whole holiday break, Chris. Well, okay. And John. Yeah, I'll give you that. I'll give you he that. was brave enough to step on the scale this morning. I not so much. I'll, <laughs> I'll give it a few days. Oh, you walk like ten <laughs> miles a day. Uh, I do. I actually need. To, I'm going for a run after this this podcast because yeah. uh, beautiful weather here in sunny Florida. So I know, I know. But I won't be running. Uh, what would what'd you say? Ninety. Uh, how how many kilometers or miles Na- per hour? Ninety three miles per hour. Yeah, or 150 yeah. kilometers per hour. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I definitely, no matter how much I run or no matter what I do, I can guarantee there's no way that my heart rate will be up to a thousand or twelve hundred beats per minute. Per minute. Uh, yeah. Per minute. Per minute. It's it's I'll the be fastest at heartbeat. Forty or one fifty, maybe. Yeah. Oh, it's the fastest heartbeat in the animal kingdom. Like that is insane. That's insane. I don't mm-hmm. need. Does a drummer even beat a drum that much? No way. There's no way. Twelve hundred no. beats per minute. No. Way. No, no yeah. way. Uh, I mean, just their physiology, their physiology is just nuts. How about this one, Angie? To conserve energy, so during the day, their their body temperature is around 105 degrees Fahrenheit or 40 and a half degrees Celsius. At night, to conserve energy, it drops to as low as 65 degrees Fahrenheit or 18 degrees Celsius. Like, Sure, yeah. That is crazy. An, mm-hmm. And that's an adaptation that is not unique to them, but it's seen in uh, some parts of the animal kingdom, but it's called toper. Mm-hmm, saying that mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what they do. In order to save energy, they basically go into this, this toper where their body temperature decreases, their heartbeat can go below 50 beats per minute, which for, uh, for a human would be still really, really, yeah. really low. But we're not really low, but low, mm. but for a hummingbird, that's incredible. I mean, yeah. you go from 1200 beats a minute to 50 beats per minute. Um, and most bird species are too la- large to use toper to save energy because it would just take too long and too much energy to warm them back up. But hummingbirds, it can take as long as an hour to come out of toper. Um, so that way they can resume normal activity. Like eating every 15 minutes. Oh, their <laughs> biology. Minutes. I mean, their biology. It's just their biology. How this all works is, yeah. is just amazing. Now we talked about they can beat yeah, their so wings. That's, uh, so just yeah. for, for math people mm-hmm. out there, that's about one, their metabolic rate is about drops to about one fifteenth of what it is of what it during was. the day. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, you know, you're, you're beating your wings up to 200 times per second. Now here's something really like most hummingbirds migrate on average 500 miles or 800 kilometers per year. So these little birds are still going 500 miles. Like that is Mm -hmm. not the state of California from top to bottoms. I think it's around 800 miles, but that's pretty far for a little bird. And Mm -hmm. this one I love the Rufus hummingbird. I love that name migrates 3000 miles or 4,800 kilometers from Mexico to Alaska where it breeds sure. in the summer. Like, yeah, that's what I was going to, yeah. So any of them that we have in North, North America, like the Ruby throated mm-hmm. and, uh, several others, they are, those are your migration champions. They're yeah. going to be migrating into, what'd you say? 3000, sometimes even 5,000, well, 3000 one way or about, you know, five to 6,000 kilometers round trip. So right. Right. They're not, they're not staying in Alaska that long mm-hmm. cause well, it gets cold and dark. So, Think about that, right? I mean, I know, I know, geez. I know. Yeah, it's crazy they fly that far. But they're but they're smart, and before their migration, sometimes they'll increase their body weight up to fifty percent before they start this migration. So maybe that's what I'm doing. I, I, I with the holidays, eating every fifteen minutes, I'm increasing my body weight for a migration that's mm-hmm. going to come here in the future. I don't know where. I'll have to be. It'll have to be made up. Maybe it'll be running stadiums or. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. Yep. Around the neighborhood, but yeah, yikes, huh? Now these these birds do live a dangerous life. They listen to this. So predators, they've been caught by dragonflies. Dragonflies. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's uh, sad. Yeah, I know. They've been trapped in spider webs, snatched sure. by frogs, yeah. stuck in trees and thistles and things like that. And the reading this. The one that, that really gets them is praying mantis will sometimes nab a hummingbird. So these little oh, tiny hummingbirds. Yeah. Huh. And other birds, you know, obviously will, will catch them. So they, it's a, it's a tough little life for these, uh, little birds. 
but they're pretty mm-hmm. quick. So zip, zip, zip. In talking about cool adaptations, geez, there's so many of them, but as you mentioned, they have a lot of flight adaptations, right? They can go, they can hover, go forward, backward, backwards flight. Like, I know that's incredible, right? And they have an incredibly fast wing beat and heartbeat, of course, to accompany their high metabolic rate uh, during the day when they're flying around collecting nectar. And a couple studies on Anna's hummingbirds uh, looked at the bird's upstroke and downstrokes mm-hmm. and reported that the birds produce 75% of their weight during the downstroke and about 25% on the upstroke. And so that's like you had mentioned that that basically generates this figure eight motion that allows them to hover, which is pretty cool science stuff. I mentioned earlier about trying to picture me doing jumping jacks, like their wing beats, uh, you know, 70 or 80 per second is just ridiculous. It's and I'm insane. thinking of doing jumping jacks or even just moving my arms up and down. Uh, and so if you take it a step further, besides flight adaptations, they have to have a lot of muscle adaptations, right? In order to be able to do that, you need muscles move bones and, or I should more correctly say the skeletal muscle. There's three types of muscles. There's smooth. That's more, that's more uh, surrounds organs and things like that. And then there's cardiac muscle. Of course, that isn't found in your heart. And then there's skeletal muscle. And that's what moves bones and creates power and creates movement. And so, and so hummingbirds have some really unique adaptations within their arm and or pectoral muscles to be able to do that. And first and foremost, the pectoris muscles pull the wings down, creating the forward motion of the bird. And the rings are the wings are raised by the supercoriatus muscles, in which hummingbirds are particularly large. In fact, these supercoriatus muscles say that ten times fast. Yeah. Can, but just kidding, don't do it. Uh, that t- they encompass twenty-five to thirty-five percent of a hummingbird's overall weight. And it's 10% more than any other flying bird. Okay. Cause in general, in birds are, their pecs are going to be larger, right? With, to help power the wings. But in hummingbirds, they're a lot larger. And they're also unusual in that they contain red muscle fiber and no white fiber. So other birds have at least some of both fibers mixed in. And the red fi- fibers are, are adapted for sustained use, while white muscle fibers allow for sudden short bursts of energy. Okay. Then flightless birds, such as our chickens, right? They, mm-hmm. That uh, us carnivores consume, um, have only white fibers. So that's, I guess, a way to think about it, right? So chickens don't fly only white fibers. Uh, whereas on the far, far, far extreme hummingbirds, only red fibers. And then most birds have mixed. So just really cool adaptations to help, help these birds, um, hover and fly and flap their wings and sustain, uh, the muscle support to move the skeleton, to move the bones, the wing bones and the shoulders and the, and the sternum and to move them, the bones that they need in order to fly. Right. 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 And muscle fibers, all of us for people to, it's, it's similar. They have three sources of ATP. And for those of you that aren't familiar, ATP, adenotriphosphate, that's energy. That's important stuff, the stuff that actually helps move the muscle fibers. And for more on that, come see me at one of my lectures oh, on yeah. muscles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I won't go too much in detail how the, yeah. uh, you know, how the, how the, All the muscles cycles, are huh. thick and thin filaments slide across each other and yada, yada, blada. But what I will say is that they need ATP or energy to do this. And so with muscle, there's three different sources of ATP. Um, and some of them are, there's in humans, at least there's creatine phosphate. And then there's, of course, anaerobic without oxygen, uh, glycolysis and then aerobic with oxygen respiration. And in humans, that's a really one of the bigger ones that's going to help generate the most ATPs and most bang for the buck. And as you can imagine, due to the large amount of muscular movement needed to move the wings at 80 times per second, uh, they're going to need a lot, a lot, a lot of ATP. Like, I'm not going to even do the math on it. So in hummingbirds, this ATP requirement is met by high rates of sugar and fatty acid oxidation. 
And this is made possible by high enzymatic flux capacities in these flight muscles that I was talking about, allowing hummingbirds to switch between fuels depending on what type of flight they're in and their flight behavior. So a ruby, my, the, my guy that I've been talking about for the whole podcast, my ruby-throated hummingbird, when they're migrating across the Gulf of Mexico, they're going to rely on fatty acid, fatty acid oxidation to generate their ATPs. Mm-hmm. But they can also use glucose and other things when needed as a backup source. They've evolved muscle ATP energy creating physiology unique for their needs for their, whether their migration needs or their hovering. Um, and it's pretty incredible. I think humans still have a lot to learn about it as far as how it's even possible. It's <laughs> like I said, incredibly, incredibly adapted. Now, while you were, we're talking, I did look it up real quick. The, the fastest drummer in the world could drum as fast as 2000 beats per minute, but that's no way sustained. There's no way that person could sustain that. That was just within 10 seconds of drumming as fast as they could. But if they could sustain it for a minute, it would be over 2000, but that's, that's neither here nor there. Now, how do you, that though, yeah. is that, that's still, is that, is that beats per minute. slower though? Oh, no, no. Of, of hum, hummingbird 80 times 60 is two. Well, no, so they're doing, right? Yeah, no, oh, well, through second. I mean, they're, they're beating faster. So we're talking about heartbeats. Remember 1200 heartbeats per, per minute. Right. But weren't wing beats, wing, wing beats, beats were like 200, up to 200 per second, per right. second. So they, There's they no still way. Win. That's oh, they win. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was saying like comparing okay. it to the heartbeat, you know, but still, if you hear the fastest drummer in the world, that is how fast a hummingbird's heart <laughs> generally. Oh, way faster than that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. Okay. So how do they do this? Yeah, there you go. So how do they do this? How do they maintain it? it it's their diet. I mean, going into nutrition, cause everything starts with nutrition, right? And you need yes. the energy. That's you why need, I'm a nutrition fan. Yes. And you need it. Now their diet's mostly liquid or nectar. And obviously they're exercising while they're out collecting. So they need to, to sustain life, they need more calories than they burn. Now I'm going to ask you, Angie, here we go. Put you on the spot. Nutrition dork. How many calories per day do you think a hummingbird consumes? Oh, I didn't, I didn't think you were going to go that way. Um, Uh, I thought you were going to stick more with ATPs. Uh, Chris, uh, that's incredible. Oh, I mean, well, human needs 3000, right? We need about 3000 calories per day. I think I'm like 1500 a day. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, allegedly 2000, I think for women, uh, but so a bird, but this bird is teeny, 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 tiny. And they burn tons of energy. Yeah. And they burn, they're just, they're like little furnaces. Um, 10,000. Oh man. Okay. okay. This is going to blow your, blow your mind. Okay. These birds consume three to seven calories per day. That's it. Three to seven calories per okay, day. I, I think I forgot to factor in the size. <laughs> yes. Yes. Quite a different. I think, I, I think I meant, I think I meant 10,000, um, not Human? kilo, but, uh, no, uh, okay. yeah. like micro calories, yeah, micro calories, yeah, yeah. M, M calories a day. <laughs> now, if you put that into human terms, okay, how many now calories a day? Yeah. All okay. Right. So I don't human know. terms, you said 10,000. I'll stick with my same guess, 10,000. Okay. Yeah. 155,000 calories a day. Wow. Is it, wow. we burned energy like a hummingbird, we would need that much. If you're talking 100,000. See, that's what I'm telling you. We need to learn from these little birds. There's something, there's like the best weight loss program ever in there. How could you eat 155,000 calories a day? Yeah, that I don't is, think you could. So we it's need, over we seventy just have to tap times into like more. part of their 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 physiology, their metabolism. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I mean, yeah. It's only three to seven calories per day, but it's in human terms, one hundred fifty five thousand calories. a okay, day. Okay, yeah. I guess I was thinking more in human terms, but still, it's I would never have guessed that high. No way. That, like you yeah, said, I can't. Yeah. Like I can picture. So I know, like some of these weight builders, and there mm-hmm. aren't some people out there that can eat ten thousand calories a day if they're trying to do. Oh. Crazy, you know, building a muscle or whatever. 
But yeah, a hundred thousand something. No way. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. It's crazy. So they, you know, they go with their, their foraging behavior and this would be good running into behavior, but they, they, people have observed them in the wild, like, you know, hitting flowers 20 times a minute and they just, you know, go and sip and hover and, and feed and go to the next one. They have this really long split tongue that vacuums the nectar out of the flowers and yeah, it's, it's like, like it's it, like capillary action. Right. And it says it has a flick rate of up to 13 licks per second. These things are <laughs> super fast. And uh, this yeah. website was reading, I think it was San Diego Zoo. I don't remember which website it was I was reading. And, and they were saying like, if you gave it a lollipop, it would just demolish it in seconds. <laughs> like just <da-da-da-da-da-da>. <laughs> <laughs> so, I do the just, same, but I bite mine. I, I can never oh, stop licking them. I always bite them. No, they are just, they're incredibly adapted. They're just incredibly adapted. When I was reading that they can drink their body mass a day in nectar. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, and, and, and I mean, it's only, you know, even though the calories are tiny in our terms, it's still a huge amount for them. It's just a huge amount for them to, to power this flight and power their bodies. Now rolling into behavior. One thing, you know, talking about them able to find these flowers and stuff. Another thing, these scientists are just astonished with them is their brain power. And how their brain is just compared to other birds, their hippocampus is just so much larger than other birds. And that helps them remember. So mm-hmm. the scientists postulate that helps them remember where the flowers are and which ones they've already eaten out of and then which ones they haven't. So they'll be able to go and and, and keep up finding that forage and that food. I mean, just crazy behaviors. Right. So they're, they're smart little birds, huh? Yes, very. Not bird brain. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Well, I think the more they're learning about birds in general, there is that their intelligence is a lot. Uh, maybe it's not the common intelligence that we're used to seeing in humans or other higher primates, but that it is definitely, definitely there. In fact, like you said, in order to migrate and to remember where to go. Um, so very specialized. With that being said, too, they're all, it's also noted that they're very curious and that they'll investigate brightly colored objects as such as potential food sources. And they're active throughout the day with peak activity at dusk and dawn. So that's going to be a good time to be looking at your hummingbird feeders or out birding for them. And because of their high metabolic rate and the cost of this flight and all the energy it takes, a lot of hummingbirds will spend about set an average of 70% of their time actually perched and preening. So not, not always in flight because the flight is so costly. And in general, hummingbirds are solitary. Of course, males and females will come together during breeding season. And in many species, the males are very territorial and it's centered around a food source and they will aggressively defend um, their territory. Females will set up territories too around their nesting sites, but they're not necessarily as, as aggressive as males and they'll, they can move through each other's territories a little bit easier. But one of the coolest facts that I was learning about was hummingbird nests. Mm-hmm. It just blew my mind. I, I've never seen one. Um, so that kind of got added to my bucket list of things to either be on the lookout for, um, uh, in the forests or just in general to go looking for a hummingbird nest is that they build cup like nests and they don't, they won't really typically use bird houses. So unfortunately that one's out. There are companies that specialize in like Y or T shaped perches that could potentially attract hummingbirds to make their cup nest there. But the female builds the nest entirely herself and it's a cup or a semi dome nests that will provide a lot of protection and nests can be lower to the ground or really, really high up in the trees, which I'm assuming, I think hopefully I'm assuming in Michigan, they must be pretty high up because I never really seen them lower down, Uh, but they're also really well camouflaged with moss, dead leaves, lichen, bark. uh, And they are, you know, just really small and they, because they're kind of like usually at a wide portion of a branch. It might just, you just might think it's part of the, of the branch, mm-hmm. right? Like, like branch mm-hmm. growth, which is their goal to camouflage it well, because they're so little. Uh, but what I found super fascinating was that these nests take up to five to 10 days for the female to build. Sometimes they're reused, uh, but typically often 
they're not, uh, depending on the species. And then the mother hummingbird will work on the nest for about four hours a day, making approximately 34 trips with different materials per hour. And the, and then will complete it within five to seven days, all while she's, uh, pregnant or having a, having, uh, and foraging too. Yeah. I mean, yeah, while she's getting food and then also has eggs growing inside of her. And so, but yeah, the other fact that was super fun was that they use all this plant material, but they they can sometimes use dryer lint or hair, um, to make their nest or cotton fluffs, but they glue together the nest with spider webs. Oh, cool. Yeah. Isn't that cool? And so what they'll do, yeah. and I should have probably led with this <laughs> to help out the audience visual, but in general, a hummingbird nest is like, the size of a walnut shell. That's tiny. It's tiny. Super tiny. Which, you know, is, um, and it's about the diameter of a penny. And her eggs, when she deposits anywhere from like one to three in the nest, are about the size of pearls. So very, very, tiny very tiny. Eggs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So sorry to go off on that nest tangent. I just think, Chris, I'll, we'll have to put a couple pictures up on the show notes because, I mean, the pictures are awesome, but it doesn't really do justice to like the size, the actual like in mm-hmm. real life size of them. And so I, I have more respect of why I haven't seen one when I was like climbing trees growing up or yeah, there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> but now I know what to look for. Darn it. So now hopefully yeah. maybe I, I will be able to, to, to find some nests. And just thinking about it, it was like these little tiny nests and I could just imagine those little nestlings and like how they first fly, things like that. You know, just everything about bird behavior is amazing. You know, like you're making me into bird nerd. What, what about like how they communicate? You know, sure. do they communicate like yeah. other birds? Um, they definitely do. I mean, we always talk about in, in bird biology, there's like songbirds. There's obviously a whole large group of types of birds. And although not technically what we, a songbird in the songbird cate- category of bird, bird biology, hummingbirds, both male and females have specific Species specific calls. They're usually short, high pitched chirps, um, but some are more drawn out. Some are more musical. And of course the singing is used to attract males and detour intruders. And they can consist of church chirps and squeaks and whistles and buzzes. And of course these calls are used differently uh, to communicate different things. Perhaps um, uh, a mother to a fledgling, a fledgling to a, a mother, a male to a female. And what's really cool, Chris, is a study came out that showed that hummingbird songs originate from at least seven specialized nuclei nuclei in the forebrain. We're talking once again about hummingbird and they're kind of their cool, their brains. And nuclei is just a fancy word for uh, a section of the brain of, of nervous tissue. But they have seven specialized nuclei and that this helps enable vocal learning. And in a genetics expression study, it was shown that these nuclei, these, these parts of the forebrain of the hummingbird, enable vocal learning. And what that is, that's the ability to acquire vocalizations through imitation. And it's actually only known to occur in parrots, which we are hopefully going to be covering this year very soon, soon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and songbirds. And then a few groups of mammals, humans, whales, dolphins, and bats. So it really kind of helps. It good really, company. Yeah, good company, right? That's yeah. why you're so attracted yeah. to them, right? So yeah, yeah. just they're really cool. I mean, I think we're still obviously we're still learning a lot more about them and um and their abilities, but yeah, it's it's pretty exciting stuff. But because hummingbirds are so cool, it's important to understand a little bit about how we make more hummingbirds. So I won't go into too much details uh, because with bird biology, I could really go on and on and on about the courtship behavior of the males and the females and things like that. But just know that in general, a lot of male hummingbirds are often have more elaborate ornamentation, such as elongated tail feathers and iridescent colors and crest. Uh, and they can, and they can be more colorful or more fancy than females, which I always think that's, that's always, I, it's always like, I would love it if males could be the ones that wear makeup in our, and fancy clothes in our society. <laughs> 
no, no, no. Uh, yes, that's it's, moving it's, on. It's moving it's on. Like, it's like why should women have to be all fancy for men? I'm it, that's what birds no. and birds. It's the males that dress up and show off and do all this it stuff. Is, and I is, think that there's, it is, I think we've is. lost a little bit of that in in our human uh, culture. So, anyways, that's a different. We'll have topic. to find a. Uh, this year, well, let's do another Birds of Paradise or yeah, something. Yeah, or a peacock you know, or something, yeah. right? I mean, oh my yeah, goodness. So, yeah. but, so yeah, so, um, males once again will interact with females only to breed and they provide no parental care. And they also, of course, don't assist in building the nest. So they're just there to look fancy and be fancy. And, uh, and, but it's important because the males use their fancy looking selves and certain calls to attract females and these, Iridescent plumage will help dis- display dramatic flight. And so they will, a lot, a lot of hummingbird species and the males are known for their spe- spectacular flights that they perform in front of the females during their courtship, uh, or if a male is intruding and they can be, they'll, they can, they'll fly up and dive like 30 meters, 30 meter dives towards the female and or an intruding male and basically land at the bottom and do some kind of chirping and then, and, and then go back up and ascend down. And they're just pretty dramatic. I, uh, I, I, I couldn't find a YouTube video on it, but it's just, I've seen in other species that do this type of courtship behavior and it's, it's pretty impressive. And once the male scores a female, she likes him, she selects him uh, based on his colors and his diving and courtship dance ability or not, I shouldn't say dance, more diving abilities. And once a male uh, breeds a female, the female will lay one, uh, one to three eggs in her little, little pearl-shaped eggs in her cute little walnut-sized cup-shaped nest. And the, on the eggs, she'll incubate them and sit on them or whatever for six to 19 days. And... There's about a 48 hour interval between each laying each egg and nesting period is about 23 to 26 days. And of course the hatchlings are born altricial, which what that means is they have no feathers, their eyes are closed and they're really dependent on mom, right? Uh, for all of their food. And even after they fledged, so that's like when the little one leaves the nest, they'll be fed by the female for 18 to 25 days after they've left the nest, which is goes to show the hummingbirds are really good moms. Um, and that also that is, you know, important. It's probably has to do, I didn't, couldn't find a study on it, but it probably has to do a lot because they require so much energy in learning how to acquire the amount of nectar needed in order to, uh, live and sustain their flight and do what they need to do. So that might be why the mom helps supplement them for a little bit longer than probably other species of birds. You know, Angie, looking at conservation stats, I think it's surprising that 10% or 37 species of hummingbirds are threatened with extinction. Like, right. wow, that's a big chunk of them. That is a big chunk. Some like the dusty star frontlet in Colombia, 50 to 250 left. The, the one that really got me is the turquoise throated puff leg. And this is in Ecuador and Colombia. Less than 50 left. They're critically endangered. So some of these species are really on the brink of extinction. And, you know, 10%, that's a ton. That's a, that's, that's a huge chunk of population. Well, that's what we know for sure too, right? There's, I mean, I think that 10% has some wiggle room to increase Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. of the ability to assess some of these populations and understand what's going on with them. Right. And I think, you know, I know we we're hitting on the, uh, the climate change. I think we really need to, to hit more on deforestation too in South America. So when we cover some more species down there, like the parrot, we can talk about how many acreage, how much acreage is lost every second. It's like, I don't mm-hmm. know, 20 football fields or something. Every second is just lost, gone right. forever, you know, just bulldozed into the ground or burnt, you know, dumping more carbon in the atmosphere. So. Yeah, that's where a lot of these animals, I mean, I look at it, Colombia, 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 Mexico, Chile, Ecuador, Ecuador, Colombia. I mean, that's where a lot of these, these species are, are in crisis, uh, in hummingbirds. So my question is, you know, who's out there fighting for them? They they need us bird nerds or want to be bird nerds Mm -hmm. to go down there and spend some of our, our money and, uh, on, uh, tourism and ecotourism and show them that that's the way. 
Yeah, that's the way. Look, look for those nests in the Brazilian rainforest. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> oh, I would love that so much. Yeah, yeah. It's that's uh, so much fun. Look, I mean, needle in the haystack. Jeez. So, who's out there fighting for these these little birds? Well, Chris, I'm glad you asked. Mm-hmm. Um, first, I want to highlight today the American Bird Conservancy. They can be found, of course, on Facebook. They have a great presence there. And then also, this is an easy one to remember, abcbirds.org. abcbirds.org. Mm-hmm. And the American Bird Conservancy is dedicated to conserving birds and their habitats throughout the Americas. Okay. And they have an emphasis on achieving results and working in partnership. And they look at the greatest problems, aka climate change, deforestation, uh, human encroachment, all those unfortunate things. They focus on those, the biggest problems facing birds today. And their mission is quite clear. It's to conserve birds and the native habitat across the America, Americas. In doing that, Chris, they benefit not only American birds, but all other species as well, like those plants in Brazil and things like that. So it's a, it's a trickle down effect. And I highly recommend, we'll put, of course, their website up on our show notes, but I, I highly recommend you checking them out uh, because they have a list of priority birds and they have a, a watch list. They have a bird of the week. They have conservation highlights where they talk about the threats, but they also talk about solutions. Yay, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, That's what mm-hmm. we're here for, right? We know there's mm-hmm. problems. So what are the solutions? And these are the bird specialists, researchers, educators, uh, policymakers, all coming together to figure out how to best solve some of these bird problems. And I also chose American Bird Conservancy because they do focus on the hummingbird. For example, more than 200 species of hummingbirds find shelter or live in the over 70 reserves that are supported by the American Bird Conservancy across the Americas. And so 200 species, that's more than 50% of known hummingbirds. So the American Bird Conservancy allocates this land and works on saving at least 50% of the hummingbirds and trying to, right? So um, definitely give them a big shout out for that. And also their website's amazing. You can learn I think you, Chris, yes, when you put yes. it up on the show notes, take a little spin through their website. It is gorgeous. And uh, every week they highlight a different species of bird and they have facts and they have ways that you can help. Uh, it's a very informative, beautiful, beautiful website. And they focus on hummingbirds as well as many other species. So check out the abcbirds.org. And secondly, I want to focus on an organization that focuses on just hummingbirds, since that's where what we were focused on today. And that is called the Hummingbird Society. And they can be found at www.hummingbirdsociety.org. They also have a great, uh, a great presence on Facebook, and they're very active. And their goal is to just teach people about hummingbirds in hopes that people will understand them better, of course, like them and care about them. Um, and then they, because, of course, the Hummingbird Society knows that from understanding and caring about a species, you'll want to prevent them from becoming extinct. And they have a great, they're one of the resources I used for the list of endangered hummingbirds. So that list is available on their website. They can show you pictures and numbers of some of the um, more specific details. And Chris and I are able to cover on this podcast regarding hummingbirds that are either endangered, critically endangered, threatened. So check them out, support them. They're a great group. If you like them on Facebook too, your news feed will be filled with beautiful pictures and you'll kind of start to begin why Chris is, uh, <laughs> in love now with these. And I also really want to give the hummingbird society a shout out too, because, um, one of their mottos is, um, uh, it's an environmentalist quote by Baba Doom that I love. And it says, start quote, in the end, we will conserve only what we love. We will love only what we understand. We will understand only what we are taught. I can't speak for everybody in the in the zoological industry or studying zoology or things like that or conservation sciences, but that was a quote 
I read years ago that really helped motivate me to want to work with animals and help conserve them and teach about it, right? Like it doesn't matter if I just conserve them. I've got to help people understand them so they love them as well. And that's what this whole podcast is about. That's what the Hummingbird Society is about, the American Bird Conservancy. So check all those groups out. Like them on Facebook, and you will thank me later. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah, it's uh, they're amazing and and amazing uh, people out there again fighting for every species we cover. For our listeners in the Americas, and I'm sorry for our listeners in Europe and our listeners down in Australia and New Zealand and Asia, but for our listeners in the in Americas, India and yeah, yes, Russia, Africa, uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, Africa, South Africa. But for our listeners, yes, for our listeners that are in the Americas, here's some plants you can do to attract and feed hummingbirds. And I'm going to put the link in the show notes. It's from the Audubon Society and some of the things that you could plant to attract them to your yard. Uh, Bee balm, honeysuckle, sages, obviously native flowers. You can put up nectar feeders. I'm going to put this in the show notes so you can, if you want to attract hummingbirds to your, to your homes, your residents, uh, here's some of the things you can do and help support these animals. And so they can get the energy they need to survive and thrive. So there you go. Conservation tip of the week. Yes. And, it, and it's going to be Valentine's day soon. And what a better way yes. to tell the person you love or show the person you love by than buying them a plant that will attract hummingbirds. Like it doesn't yeah, get much better. Yeah. That'd be that, cool. Right? Yeah. All right, Angie, here's here's another uh, quiz. How small do you think the smallest hummingbird is? Oh, wow. Um, I know I came across it uh, in my reading, and I was uh-huh. taken taken back. It was very, very – it was gr- some grams. And I know grams very well because from all my nutrition studies, measuring out feed supplements. Mm-hmm. And a gram is like mm-hmm. a very, very small <laughs> amount of yes. stuff on yes. a scale. Uh, I don't know, like five or six grams was it? Uh, no, the smallest is two inches or five centimeters tall. Uh And it's probably like 1.3 grams. Whoa. Okay. Gosh. (laughs) It's called the bee, the bee hummingbird. It's 0.07 ounces. So you convert that to grams. Yeah. It's, it's tiny. It's like one and a half grams. Now the biggest one is nine inches, the giant hummingbird. And they're about 18 grams. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you, two inches. Two inches. Two inches. That's so cute. That's tiny. Oh my God. Little bird, little bee, honeymoon bird. Oh. <laughs> it's just, oh my goodness. Yeah. I'll never find that, right. that nest. I, uh, yeah, yeah, right? Can no, no. Oh my God. Oh, they're just, oh, so cute. All right. So please send this podcast to a friend, uh, rate and review if you haven't. Please put those pictures on the show notes, Chris. I need to see that cute little yes. hummingbird. I know. I know. The bee hummingbird is just, uh, they're adorable. Oh, yes. And, yeah, All that, right. Oh, that is one of my last requests too, is that if you can, uh, rate and review us like on iTunes, I noticed that we haven't had any, any ratings or, uh, yeah, like, uh, I guess a rating where they, where you talk mm-hmm. about us. That would, that would be very helpful, um, for anybody who listens on iTunes, um, to give us five, six, ten stars, however many are allowed. Yes. And, but then also putting, <laughs> yes. put in, you know, one or two sentences on why you like the podcast. Cause I know there's obviously a lot of podcasts out there. Uh, and so it might help people that are surfing and looking for other animal podcasts. Uh, your one or two nice sentences could, potentially help direct them to our podcast yeah yeah that'd be great that'd be great we appreciate it and we're gonna keep working hard another i mean we have a whole slate this year we, we're already like into february march planning and setting up interviews it's gonna be awesome yeah we've got a lot coming we've got a lot coming so thanks for sticking with us and we'll talk to you uh, in a few days thank you everyone listen learn share Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.